exclamatory comments. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Verse 7, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now we'll stop there briefly and just point out that Abraham is at the center of the covenanting that, that Paul is developing in this passage. As you know, in the background, some of the Jews are claiming that the Gentiles had to be circumcised and thereby adopt all the burden of the law and fulfill it in order to be saved. And Paul denies this. His gospel is entirely different. Notice, however, when you read in uh, Galatians 3.7, know that those who are of faith, these are sons of Abraham. So faith is what qualifies for becoming an, an heir of believing Abraham. Now verse 8, this is an a important passage for a number of reasons. The scripture, because it foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles from faith, preached the gospel earlier or pre-preached the gospel to Abraham saying, quote, uh, in you all the nations will be blessed. Now that verse, of course, is important for their doctrine of scripture. What God does, the scripture does. Scripture just records what God has done. But notice it's the scripture which is seeing ahead of time what God will do. Now, think about what he says here. The scripture, because it foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, pre-preached the gospel to Abraham when the scripture records, in you all the nations of the world would be blessed. You can see some really important points here, can't you? That when God spoke to Abraham here, it was... In, in view of what he would do later. So he, he gave a preliminary announcement of what he would do. And Paul calls that a pre-preaching of the gospel. I'm using that term. It says in your translation, preach the gospel beforehand. But in Greek, it's really one word with a prefix, like pre, pre-preached. And what Paul means by that is, it's the same gospel that I preach. So Abraham has the same gospel, a gospel of justification by faith in Christ. And yet he heard a preliminary announcement of it, a, a, a previous announcement. So there's development, you see. Now, I, he doesn't have to use that prefix, pre-preach. He could have just said, the scripture preached the gospel to Abraham, saying, 
But what Paul is doing is doing just what we do in covenant theology. He's preserving the unity of the gospel while acknowledging the distinctions. Because later on in this chapter he says, but before that faith came, we were under the law. This is verse 23. And it's not before faith at all came. It's not before anybody ever believed in God. That's not what he's saying. But look at verse 22. It's specifically faith in Jesus Christ who died and was resurrected and seated at the right hand of the Father. That kind of faith. You see, your faith is now has come, in a sense, because Christ has come. The fullness of faith has now been revealed. Beforehand, though, they had real, genuine, saving, justifying faith. Abraham was justified. But that was a pre-preaching of the gospel because Christ hadn't come yet. That's the difference. So it's not the quality of faith that differs. It's the movement of redemption outside of faith that is where the distinction lies. And Paul, Paul, you see, is working with those dynamics. There's continuity. We are heirs of Abraham along with him. Yet Abraham heard this preliminary announcement of the gospel. So you see both the unity and the distinctions that you can make. And that's what we're doing with covenant theology. And those distinctions can be expressed as different administrations of the covenant of grace. But notice also that the new covenant and its fulfillment is really the focus of attention in God's dealing with Abraham. The scripture, because it foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, the whole you know, corpus of his people, we live in the age of fulfillment, of greater blessing, what God was moving toward with the preliminary announcements. Now again, you're thinking of your dispensational brothers, aren't you? Who really make it sound like Israel in Palestine is the center of God's whole working. And if we can just get back there, we'll be fine. But you see, that's all was all set up in order to move us to where we are today. With the Gentiles and all of God's people, Jew and Gentile together, believing in Christ, come together in the church in this current expression. We live in the great age of God's working because Christ has come. So you see all of that really is implied in what Paul is saying here and the way he expresses it. Now verse 10, he draws a sharp distinction between works of law. You could just render that as uh, works which the law demands, those requirements of the law saying that you have to remain in them entirely. This is perpetual obedience. Remember what I said about the, the heart of the covenant of works is personal and perpetual as well as perfect obedience. But perpetual obedience. So you have to remain in all the things written in the book of the law to do them. And the way he expresses to do them means to complete them. In fact, that's even a variant reading in our manuscripts. It's interpreted to be you have to do all the things in the law, every single one of them, you have to do it. It's not just a process of being engaged in, in starting to do them all, being engaged in law-keeping. No, you have to do everything all the way to the end and complete all the terms of the law personally, perfectly, perpetually to be justified by law. 
Paul says, you can't do it. And once you make the basis of inheritance law-keeping, that is a foreign principle to promise and grace and inheritance based on this gospel. It's a different gospel. Because notice you get all of a sudden right here, Christ himself purchased us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse on our behalf. It's not just curse in general, but a curse of the law administration of Moses. He quotes the Mosaic Covenant, Deuteronomy 27. Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. So we could even say that part of the purpose of the law, we talk about the three main uses of the law, rightly so, but another use you could, you could invoke is part of why God gave the Mosaic Covenant is to bring a curse upon Christ, to bring an administration of curse that Christ would suffer on our behalf, that he would substitute for us and have a curse in place that he would uh, undergo on our behalf, not because he deserved it. Praise God. So then we might receive the inheritance. Now, once he talk, starts talking about the inheritance, the promise, all of these things suggest to him now covenant. So he's going to turn to that in verse 15. So let's go on to that uh, place. But you can see he's moving toward covenant and administration of covenant. And now he's going to get more specific. Now, verses 15 through 20 are not exactly a unit. You really have to go further into the passage, but that's what we're going to treat uh, immediately. Let me just give you some uh, preliminary survey before we look at all the details of this passage. Well, I'll read it first, and then we'll uh, survey the, the topics here. Verse 15, Galatians 3. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's uh, covenant, I'd really rather translate that last will and testament. Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to annul the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. The real crux of this uh, passage is verse 20. What does God being one have to do with anything? And that's a real crux. Now, in answering that question, there are a number of other questions you have to answer first. In verses 15 and 16, I believe that Paul is giving a human analogy between covenant and last will and testament. And this is easy to do in the original because the word covenant and last will and testament is the same word in Greek, diatheke. It, it, it's the word used in the Septuagint to translate Hebrew berit, covenant. 
and it means last will and testament in Greek society. So there's a bit of a wordplay possible here. But also, there is a unity between covenant and testament in that both have an inheritance. You can convey an inheritance by way of covenant, as well as what the main reason why you have a last will and testament is to convey an inheritance. Now what I believe Paul is doing in verses 15 and 16 is he's setting up an analogy between covenant and last will and testament. So you should, did, do you have a question? Somebody has a question? He's setting up, setting up an analogy here. He's saying, and he says that, verse 15, brothers, I'm going to give you a human analogy. He says, I, I'm going to speak according to man. It just means, I'll give you a day-to-day -day analogy for understanding the dynamics of covenant. And it runs like this. Even a human last will and testament, remember, diatheke, both in covenant or testament. But here he says, even a human last will and testament, once it has been registered, they used to register their, their testaments in a public office, no one else comes along and uh, nullifies it or adds a codicil. He uses technical terms here for last wills and testaments. And codicil is some extra terms of a last will and testament where you give part of the inheritance to somebody new. You change some terms of your inheritance uh, that you're passing on. And he uses a technical term for that. So no one else, once it's been uh, set in place or registered, no one else comes along and changes it, you know, really annuls it or adds a codicil. Now this has been questioned, there's been a lot of debate in, earlier in, uh, in our commentaries on just exactly what this is all about. And uh, some people have said, well even the testator couldn't change the terms of the will in some society. Well then we found a lot of Greek and Roman uh, wills where indeed they could change. They could annul that uh, last will and testament and put a new one in place, they could add codicils, uh, when you read these things, uh, many of them, many of the last wills and testaments in Paul's day, uh, the testator explicitly says, let no one change, annul, or add a codicil to this testament. And then later, later on he says, I might do that. And I think that's the answer here, and this is a really important point. What Paul is saying is not well, God, once he set up a last will and testament, he couldn't change his mind. And he couldn't change the terms of his inheritance. See, he's not saying that. What he's saying is, God, once he's established this uh, testamentary disposition and, and conveys an inheritance by way of promise to the seed... No third party can come in and change the terms of that inheritance. That's what he's saying here. And that third party would be Moses. If you, the Jews, who want to be justified by law, say that God will accept that, it is tantamount to saying that Moses has intervened between the promise that God made to Abraham and to his singular seed. 
You're making Moses a mediator of that inheritance. And that is tantamount to changing a third party coming in and changing a will. You can't do it. Even a human will, you can't do that. Much less God's. That's exactly what he goes on to say. In verse 17, he gives the... Now he switches to covenant in verse 17. He's been dealing with this testamentary analogy. Last will and testament, no one does that. Now when you deal with covenant, verse 17, I declare this. Uh, the law, which has come 430 years later, once it has been previously established by God, the law cannot annul it so as to destroy the promise. See, God as the testator, as it were, conveying an inheritance to Abraham and to his seed, who is Christ, verse 14, or verse uh, 16, to his seed. Once he set that up, the law can't be set up as a way of changing the whole terms of that inheritance to make law-keeping now personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience the requirement for receiving the inheritance. If you do that, it's, it's, it's a third party breaking the whole chain. And that's the point of this passage. Paul is, and this is a, another important point, the commentators make it sound like Paul is denigrating the law. That's even a term you'll find in the commentaries. Paul is showing the inferiority of the law to the gospel. And that's not Paul's point. He is not denigrating the law or showing its inferiority. He's showing its proper role in the covenantal administration of God. He's saying it just doesn't function that way. If it did function that way, it would be tantamount to all these bad things as he said. So the law here is not being, uh, is not just inferior in some way or weak or something. No, it's just a whole different thing that didn't have the purpose of changing the terms of the inheritance by faith through grace. So in verse 18, for if it were the inheritance, notice here now the connection between testament and covenant. For if the inheritance were based on law, then it would no longer be based on a promise. But to Abraham, God bestowed it through a promise. Therefore, it can't be by law. So that if he adds a law, it can't be to change the terms of the inheritance. This is important to keep in mind because it's going to help us understand 20, where we're getting to. Now, verse 19. You know, now, why did God add the law? Why then the law? And Paul doesn't answer that very fully. He just throws out a quick point because he's not really talking about the law here. He's talking about the inheritance. But he says, for the sake of transgressions, it was added. What is that? So the law was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Until that seed should come. And that's Christ, you see. He just said in verse 16, the seed is singular Christ and the law was given as a administration in force until a certain point. Until the seed comes, the law as a whole entity 
with all of its theocratic and typological elements. It was working to that point until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. You see, if you're going to receive the inheritance, it must be through that seed. He is the mediator. Paul doesn't explain all of that here, but that's what he says pretty clearly in verse 19. So that now Abraham is, is moved to the background. Now you have moved to the background. And now what's in the foreground is Christ. Until he comes to receive the promise and to receive the whole promised package that was in place at the time of Abraham. He pre-preached the gospel to Abraham because he would set the seed. You start seeing that this is the fixed counsel of God, covenant of redemption. Until that seed should come, he did other things. But until he should come, uh, these other things were in force. And they were commanded through angels by the hand of a mediator, Moses. Now let me explain those two phrases briefly. Commanded through angels. Again, people who see that Paul is denigrating the law see him saying that when angels are mediating the law, it makes it inferior, whereas God mediates everything else. I don't, I don't think that's proper. All Paul is doing is making an historical point that on Mount Sinai, when the law was given, there were angelic signs. It was accompanied by angels. Stephen says this in Acts 7, that the law was given through angels. Hebrews 2 talks about the angels being ministers and accompanying the giving of the law. So Paul is really saying, yes, the law had divine attestation. He sent his angels to minister it. Yes, it was a good thing. It was God's work. Because some people see this as the law sort of crept in apart from God's own plan. And you see, this is just absolutely improper. That's not what Paul is doing at all. Commanded through angels is a way of exalting the law, even accompanied by angels, by the hand of a mediator. Now, this phrase, by the hand of a mediator, or in the hand of a mediator, more literally, comes right out of the Old Testament, where it says a couple of times, the law was given by the hand of Moses. And he's simply pointing to Moses here. Through angels, by Moses. But here is how we understand verse 20 now. When you see that that mediator is Moses mediating the Mosaic law. Now verse 20. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one. The grammar here is a little bit, uh, if you're looking at your Greek, the grammar is a little tricky, but you'll find a parallel in uh, 2 Corinthians 2.3, you want to note that, parallel for grammar, Greek grammar, where he says, uh, my joy is of all. And the way to read this is really not difficult. It's a, it's a fairly common construction, but it's, it's a little tricky at first. All he's saying is, now when you have a mediator, you don't have a mediator when there's only one party involved in the transaction. This is a sort of truism, right? If, if I'm going to set up a disposition where I'm going to be the uh, benefactor and the benefactee, perhaps I could set up a, uh, a trust fund for myself. 
you know, or something. I don't know. I don't know if I could do that, but that would be the idea. You see, I'm, I'm, I'm both the benefactor and the beneficiary. I don't need to call in a third party. I don't need a mediator because I'm in full agreement with myself, and I'm not going to cause myself any trouble over this, right? Now notice the verse 20. That's what, that's what Paul says. He says the main parties, the benefactor and the benefactori, the seed who is going to come, are one because God is one. This, friends, is the covenant of redemption right there. And notice how he invokes the Shema, the great banner of Jewish identity. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. The great identity of Judaism is the singularity of God. And Paul invokes that great formula for Jewish identity to destroy his Jewish opponents. Isn't that wonderful? He says, you Judaizers, you think you're Jews, you're destroying Judaism, and you're making two gods. Because the one who gave the promise and the one who would come to receive the promise is the one God, Father and Son. I think that's how you read this verse. Now, do you have any questions on that? So let me just summarize real quickly. I might have to sink in a moment. To summarize, the Jewish opponents Paul is dealing with are saying that Moses and law-keeping, that whole structure, is the real basis of receiving the inheritance and being a child of Abraham and receiving the promise. Paul says, if you're doing that, you're making Moses a mediator of that inheritance and that inheritance has no mediation because it originates between the father and the son the seed who will come and when the son comes into his inheritance verse 29 if you belong to Christ the covenant mediator then you are seed of Abraham heirs according to promise But you see, between the Father and the Son, there can be no mediation because God is one. You don't have a mediator when there's only one party. So he's not been, he's not been denigrating Moses or the law here. He's simply been showing the proper covenantal role of the law is not to mediate the promise. And it never was designed to do that. And to make it do that would put you under the whole burden of the law and cut you off from Christ. And this is Galatians 5.3 if you want to turn there. This is why Galatians 5.2 through 3 works. And remember, the covenant of works is personal, perpetual, and perfect obedience. That's the heart of it. Personal obedience. You have to fulfill the terms. And that's what Paul says here. Behold, I, Paul, declare to you that if you receive circumcision, you are no longer Christ's. Christ will do you 
no good whatsoever. You've cut yourself off from Christ and all the benefits of his sacrifice are no longer applied to you. Verse 3. Again, I testify to every man who wants to be circumcised that he is debtor personally to fulfill the whole law. You're under covenant works. If you reject the covenant of grace, if you reject Christ and the terms of his uh, work on the cross and, re- and the terms that he lays down to become a beneficiary and an heir according to promise by faith it puts you automatically under a covenant of works now you are a debtor to keep the whole law every single yod and tittle I- isn't it interesting this, he is working right here with that same construction we have in covenant theology the covenant of works is personal obedience. See, that's what he says. You are a debtor. You yourself personally are indebted now to fulfill the whole law if you're cut off from Christ. So that if someone is outside the covenant of grace, they are under a covenant of works. They are cursed under that covenant. And when we go to Romans 5, of course, we are already born under a curse because of Adam. You can't even start to fulfill all the law because you begin under condemnation through the one man that's what Paul says in Romans I don't follow your question yes we are obligated yes if the question is if we reject Christ, are we obligated to keep all the law? Absolutely. And remember in Romans, Paul says, even the Gentiles are obligated to the law of God written on their heart. And they will be judged by that law. As well as the Jews, who have a fuller expression of that law, down to every you know, little detail. Then absolutely. This is why there is no salvation outside of Christ. And it's only Christ. Notice it doesn't allow any Buddha or Hindu or there's no other name under heaven and earth by which a man can be saved. Because this promise was, was given to this seed of Abraham. Verse 16, this singular seed. It was really granted to Christ. He's the mediator of this promise. And Abraham received it only because he in a preliminary hearing of the gospel, heard Christ. Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. He saw it from a distance, but he rejoiced in it. And that was his faith. John? The question is, how does the covenant works of Adam have a perpetual character if it's probationary? I think the answer would be Adam would still be under obligation through eternity and all of his inheritance if he passed the probation, but he would have been confirmed in righteousness and not been possible for him to sin. We, we only can speculate on that, but it's a good speculation in my opinion. 
in the same way that we look forward to perfection of our will to where we can't sin anymore either in, in our heavenly existence. So it is possible for that to happen because that's our great hope <laughs> without compromising the freedom of our will. Uh, but it, it still would be a perpetual obligation as creature to perfectly obey God, but we would do it, he would have done it naturally without any thought. The probationary character of the Adamic covenant was temporary, as you are suggesting, and that character, you know, not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, perhaps that would have been removed, I don't know. So there would have been a, a feature of that covenant which probably would have been temporary. But that's uh, tonight's lesson. In verse 14, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Yeah. Um, I look at the Abrahamic promise and say, where is that promise of the Spirit back in the Abrahamic covenant? Yeah. The question is, where in the Abrahamic covenant was there a promise specifically of the Holy Spirit. Verse 14 in Galatians 3.14 In order that the Gentiles might receive the blessing of Abraham in Christ Jesus. And notice again how he can't even think of this blessing conveying to Abraham even without Christ Jesus in view. In order that the promise of the Spirit we might receive through faith. I'm not sure he... I think the answer at the top of my head, and I, I'm glad to be corrected or think further about this, is that the explicit promise of the Spirit is not made in the Abrahamic promise, in the specific promise. It's not spelled out. But I think the promises of the Spirit of the New Covenant, which are really tied to the promissory character of the New Covenant, which Abraham preliminarily receives, that's where the Holy Spirit as a promise is received, the Jeremiah 33, Ezekiel passage. So there is no specific promise of the Spirit in the Abrahamic, but if he's going to receive eternal life, it must be through the Holy Spirit's agency, and that's later added to Revelation. I would think that Paul would see those as, as I, I think I think what it is is it's really similar to how we view Revelation that there's it grows that there's an organic connection between what God is revealing He reveals preliminarily elements and then adds to it without changing but adds to the fullness of what we understand and the promises become fuller as uh, we move through redemption until Christ comes. In the same way that you could look at Genesis 3.15 as the very heart of the gospel, and, but it's, it's very sketchy. But then later on he adds to that. So I don't think there's any... I don't... Um, I, I think later on you can look back at the Abrahamic covenant and see that the Holy Spirit is symbolized in some way, perhaps through circumcision, in the cutting off the flesh and the purification involved in that. That's an act, act of the Holy Spirit. Maybe that would be 
possible. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and later revelation. Not in Abraham, but although we do see it more in the promise of Jeremiah and Ezekiel of the new covenant being, uh, the they would, we would receive the Holy Spirit. So God does hint at the new covenant blessing, but what what makes that work is seeing the essential continuity of the Abrahamic promises with our promises and the promise that Christ receives and conveys to us. They aren't different. It's not really a different promise. But now we understand more fully that the Holy Spirit really is the one who brings those promises to us. If we receive the Spirit, we have the promises. We have everything. It really goes back to verse... Uh, oh, early in this chapter, in verse 3. So then, are you so ignorant that once you have begun in the Spirit, are you now going to be perfected in the flesh? You see, the Spirit is the beginning of all their regeneration and faith. So that now, you know, if, if you're going to have that starting point, are you going to cut yourself off from further progress through the Spirit by relying upon your own law-keeping and flesh? That's what he says. So the Spirit, you see, is operating in all phases of our receiving the promise. Larry? <laughs> Do I have any? Uh, uh, Larry McHarg, who teaches at a uh, particular college where he might <laughs> occasionally run into a dispensationalist, <laughs> asks whether we, uh, I have any suggestions on how to present covenant theology to a dispensationalist. I would have them read the book of Hebrews. I think the book of Hebrews deals with some of the same issues that the dispensationalists are dealing with. And, and repeats them. This is a suggestion of Vern Poitras in his book, uh, Understanding Dispensationalism, which is a fine little book if you don't have it yet. Uh, I believe Zondervan carries it. it. I don't know if it's on the book table, but it, it's uh, Vern Poitras, Understanding Dispensationalism. And he's, uh, Vern is, teaches New Testament at Westminster in Philly. He was invited to the Dallas Seminary campus couple of times to present his stuff and very warmly received, interestingly. It's, it's an ironic book and helps, helps address that, actually. He, he gives strategies on helping dispensationalists see these things. But I, I think if you just work through the book of Hebrews with somebody, it, you start seeing that, you know, one passage in particular in Hebrews 11, Abraham wasn't, when, he, when Abraham heard the land promise, he wasn't thinking about Palestine. Even Abraham was looking for a city not made by hands, whose builder and maker is God. I mean, it says explicitly there. This is a good This is a good verse. It's uh, Galatians 3:8. That's a pre-preaching of the gospel, looking ahead. Because the dispensational brothers, of course, think of the new covenant era as a plan B. You know, when the original plan didn't work, God came up with this other one on the fly where the Gentiles are included as an afterthought. And really, Paul is saying the Gentiles are included in the Abrahamic promise to begin with. That's the original that God was 
uh, preliminarily announcing to Abraham. The scripture had that in mind, you see. We are in the age of fulfillment. So they get it backwards. Thank you. Just pointed out that Peter's sermon in Acts 2, I'm doing this for the tape, Peter's sermon in Acts 2 was, brings out similar continuity and fulfillment motifs as we find in Galatians, only with the Davidic covenant. He's focusing more on Christ and how he fulfills the messianic promises and the messianic role of the covenant. Let me make a quick application. If we're right here in Galatians 3.20, it would split God in half to change the terms of the covenant. And you know, when you're dealing with people, we naturally gravitate to the covenant of works, don't we? What can I do to satisfy God? What can I do to salve my conscience? I think the salving of the conscience is one of the big issues today. And that's why that Galatians, excuse me, that Hebrews 9.14 passage is so precious to me. As he goes through, Christ offered himself through the eternal spirit to God to cleanse our consciences from dead works that we might serve the living God. Isn't that the dynamic of the gospel? We have a clear conscience because Christ purchased it by his redemption. Our clear conscience isn't because we've finally achieved something. So that we can serve God in gratitude. Then we go off in sanctification. Then we add good works out of gratitude, not to contribute to salvation, but in response. That's the dynamic of the gospel. We're free to do good works. We're free to serve God as children who are saved by grace and received in, into his family, which is a covenant bond. That's the dynamic of the new covenant. And you see here, Paul says it just as strongly as can be. He says, you can't change the terms of God's covenant making and receiving the promise because it doesn't even, uh, it's not even centered originally between you and God. It centers originally between the Father and the Son. This was determined in the fixed counsel of God a covenant of redemption. And it was for your benefit. You see, Christ died for you. He, he took upon himself the curse of the law for your sake, not for his own. He didn't deserve it. And so this all now centers, you see, on what Christ has done and that we just can't change it. And God won't listen to people who make up their own religion, basically, and dictate to God what he must accept in order to justify us, whatever it is. And there are all sorts of forms of that today. You know, I'll, I'll, do my, I'll finally do my Bible reading every day if you know, get a good conscience or something, you know, whatever. You know, or I'll make prayer wheels you know, like the Hindus. Whatever it might be, this is the only way. And to do otherwise is to 
no longer have the one God. But also, you see, this is great assurance, isn't it? This is, I mean, God has determined this. So that if you approach God in this way and claim the inheritance through Christ by faith, he's fixed his oath on it. It's settled. He, he, he guarantees to you that he will receive you in Christ and that he finds Christ's sacrifice acceptable. Because he has appointed Christ to be high priest according to the order of Melchizedek by oath. This is really what Hebrews is all about. By oath, he has said, I will accept. I find that acceptable. And we can be absolutely guaranteed that Christ's sacrifice is enough. And God has fixed it by oath. This covenant has been fixed from forever so that we can be assured that even though to us it may not seem like enough, God finds it satisfactory. And this is how you assure people that the basis of their salvation is outside of themselves. And we simply receive it. Because faith is simply holding your hands out and receiving it. And then a living faith follows in gratitude with a new life by the power of the Spirit in us. But it's simply out of gratitude not to earn anything except to express our love to our loving Father. So this passage has a lot of practical significance, but I think you see there that this is really the very foundation of the gospel, and it's expressed covenantally in our passage. Are there any other questions before we go on? Larry? Yes. I didn't I didn't hear your last point. I'm wondering if the way you put it made me wonder if the regulative principle of worship is related to this point. Question is is the regulative principle of worship related to this point? The regulative principle of worship is a covenantal principle. God is our suzerain, our sovereign, who dictates to us what he finds acceptable, how we should serve him as his creatures and as his liege, uh, how we should serve our liege Lord as his vassals. That's where the connection with covenant is. He is our Lord. His word is authoritative, binding, determinative for our actions. We'll see in the Adamic covenant that was a thoroughly covenantal act. In the day you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will die. That was an act of a, of a Lord setting the terms of obedience. And that's what a covenant is. So the regulative principle is connected to this very directly. But our motive for fulfilling the regulative principle is the same as any other motive for doing good works. Free to serve God, but doing it in a way that he finds acceptable. Uh, it's interesting that Hebrews, at the end of Hebrews, talks about that. Uh, I'll look it up here. It's in Hebrews 13. All this covenantal... You know, Hebrews has been called the, the epistle of the covenant for good reason. Well, I'm, I'm not sure I can find the, the verse now. 
It's right near the benediction. Well, he does work in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. I was thinking the passage of, let us serve the Lord with fear and reverence. Here it is, it's, it's 12.28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, so notice the objective foundation, we receive this kingdom from God's beneficence. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. But it has to be acceptable service. It's service that he accepts, not acceptable to us. The service that, that the Lord finds acceptable. And the word service there is the same word used for priestly service in the, in the uh, temple. There are various words for service in Greek, and this is the one for specifically priestly service. Ministration in a, in a temple. It's also, by the way, the same word used in Hebrews 9.14, that we might serve the Lord. So yes, the regulative principle is connected to covenant theology, as is all Reformed theology. <laughs> I mean, I can say that programmatically, and then, and, and then me actually making the connections is sometimes an iffy proposition, but uh, I, I do think we can... Uh, these are central truths of our theology, and I think these other aspects of Reformed theology, like the regulative principle, really flow out of this core And by the way, I don't, I don't know if uh, you had uh, Bob Godfrey a couple of years ago speaking on that here, and maybe you've already heard it in church or elsewhere, but uh, it, it has struck me after looking at the Reformation a little bit more that the regative principle really would have been the great issue of the Reformation that most people saw. Because the, the ordinary parishioner really wouldn't understand or deal with justification by faith as a doctrine that much. Uh, many of them did. They read the materials and such. But I think most parishioners really would have seen the Reformation as primarily a Reformation of worship. And, you know, one of the great benefits of the, of the Reformation was that the congregation can sing in worship. So it wasn't a negative thing. The regulative principle wasn't originally, well, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that. It was originally a positive thing. You don't have to do that junk that you find so burdensome. Go on pilgrimages, climb up stairs on your knees, all this business. But rather, you can worship God in your own locality in a way that you can understand in your language, and you can sing God's praises now. You are free now to enter into worship. Because think about a cathedral worship in in the high middle ages you'd go into this cavernous t uh, cathedral and there would be private masses all along the wings in Latin you don't understand Latin and then they would have a they would have a screen in front so that the actual some of the proceedings of the main mass were done behind a screen you couldn't see it was too holy it was the holy of holies and you were just there watching there might be a boys choir singing in Latin but you didn't understand Latin so worship, you know, for a high middle ages was very non-involvement. And I, I believe that any, any form of worship which removes involvement of the congregation has to be really carefully thought through. You understand what I mean by that? I, I think, for example, taking away congregational singing in any way 
is a real problem for me because that's, that's something God gives you and it's something really important to your spiritual life so, anyway I think that would have been the main one of the main things that the Reformation people saw was we're singing now and it was wonderful. They loved it. <laughs> and now we got off on that. It, it has something to do with covenant, believe me. <laughs> Everything does. All of life does. Okay. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak uh, tonight very, very briefly, I think, on the structural... Uh, well... Actually, I'm probably going to skip over that. I'm hoping that this uh, material we did on the establishing the covenant of redemption is enough to at least get you thinking along those lines. I'm not going to speak about it more tonight, actually, but we'll move to the covenant of works as planned so we don't fall behind, and that will be the Adamic covenant. So we'll see you tonight. Let's go ahead and close our time with prayer. We're having uh, another prayer for the uh, food later, so I won't pray for our food. But let's, let's close in prayer. Almighty Father, we thank you for freeing us to worship you by your grace, for giving us an imperishable inheritance reserved in heaven for us where our Lord sits at your right hand. We do pray that you will bless us to give us perseverance and increase our hope and our joy in Christ today, that we may serve you with gladness and we may honor our, our dear Lord who is risen and who is there ministering in our behalf by your wonderful grace. We thank you for these blessed truths, O oh Lord, and help us to grow in our, in our appreciation of them and our understanding that we may serve you and help others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.